And now we're going to consider this morning a church committed to one another. And these are important um, principles that we see that the early Christian church lived out. And we see it particularly in the book of the Acts. So a church committed to one another. I wonder how you would define commitment. Um, 30, 40, 50 years ago, when communism was probably at its height, um, there were people in America that were becoming persuaded by the communist cause. And I want to read you a story of a young man who um, was engaged to a young lady who was a young American, and he became a communist. And as a result, he decided to break off his uh, relationship, engagement to this young lady for the communist cause. And he wrote her a letter. And this is what he wrote. We communists get shot at, hung, jailed, lynched, tarred and feathered, slandered, ridiculed and fired from our jobs. In every way, we are made to feel uncomfortable. A certain percentage of us get killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the party every penny we make what is above that which is necessary to live. We communists don't have time or money for many movies or concerts, T-bone steaks or decent homes or new cars. We've been described as fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. We communists have a philosophy of life which no amount of money could buy. We have a cause to fight for, a definite purpose in life. We subordinate our petty personal selves into a great movement for humanity. There is one thing about which I am in earnest, the communist cause. It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife, my mistress, my bread and my meat. I work at it in the daytime and dream of it at night, therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without everything relating to this force which both guides and drives my life. I have already been in jail for my ideas, and if necessary, I am ready to go before the firing squad. Communism is a forced community, but it is not commitment. It is fanaticism. And at the height, many young people were drawn into it in a fanatical way. We see something very similar today with so many terrorist threats that go on, that people who follow extreme causes become fanatics for a particular cause. When you look at the commitment that we see the early Christian church having, they were not fanatics. There was not a fanaticism that gripped them about a particular cause because Jesus never called us to be fanatics. He called us to be followers. He asks for commitment for those who would follow him. If you look in Matthew chapter 8 verses 19 to 22, this is what it says. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he instructed his disciples to cross to the other side of the lake. Then one of the teachers of religious law said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. 
But Jesus said, foxes have dens to live in, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said, Lord, let me first return home and bury my father. But Jesus said, follow me. Let the spiritually dead bury the dead. And then in Luke 9, verse 23, in a similar way, Jesus said to the crowd, if any of you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily and follow me. The early Christians, they demonstrated a commitment that was powerful and attractive. Their commitment was expressed in words like being devoted, sharing generously with one another, being united, unselfish, being a community, being hospitable, having fellowship, expressing a oneness and being in complete unity together. Now, it says in Acts 4, 32, and this is the verse that I want us just to focus on together this morning. Acts 4, 32, Nanny read it to us. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. Acts 4, 32. All the believers were united in heart and mind. It's just interesting here, the Greek that is behind our English translation. United in heart literally means in tune or in sync with one another. Do you remember in school, the three-legged race that you did in junior school on the sports day? You had to be in sync with one another to be able to run together. Or if you think of dancing partners, I don't know if you're a fan of Strictly, uh, I'm not watching it at present, but if you're a fan of anything like that, you know that a couple to dance together have to be in sync with each other. That's the meaning here when it says these early Christians were united in heart. But then it also says they were united in mind. And the Greek meaning behind that is literally to breathe together or to breathe spiritually together. And here was a group of people who were so connected together, there was no disagreement, there was no dissension, there was no discord. That has to be a work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts and in their minds. Now, when it comes to commitment, most of us want commitment on our own terms. We decide what we are committed to and how much of our time we will give to it. If you think, if you're a member of a gym or a health club. A few years ago, Janice and I thought we would like to join a, a gym stroke health club. And we went to one of them, the David Lloyd one in Southampton. And we had this appointment. And the first thing the woman said to us was, how many times a week can you come here? And we said, well, maybe a couple or one. She said, well, that's no good. You've got to come at least five times a week to get your money's worth. And we just thought there's no way we can make that kind of commitment. So we didn't naturally join up. But of course, when it comes to commitment, invariably it's on our terms. We want to choose. We want to decide what is convenient and what will suit us. When you think of commitment from the biblical perspective and particularly what we read of and see in the Acts and those who follow Jesus, it is never on our terms. 
The word commit means to enjoin or to entrust. And perhaps a very helpful example is when a couple get engaged. An engagement is a commitment to a promise that you are going to marry and join or entrust your lives one to the other. However, however, that often flies a bit counterculture to the times in which we live, because we live in a culture where life is about me. It's about what I want. It's about the choices I want to make. I remember many years ago seeing painted across a wall this statement, abortion, a woman's right to choose. And we live in a culture today where it's about me, it's about my rights. But invariably, we forget that with rights comes responsibility. And what about the responsibility for the new life that has been created within the womb when people talk about my right to abort if I so choose? It's ethically very confused. And we live in an ethically confused generation today where everything is so focused upon what I want to do, what I choose to do, that often we can get that clouding our thinking as to what biblical commitment is all about and what it means to commit our lives to follow the Lord Jesus. You see, true commitment is not about my rights. It's about taking responsibility or ownership to play your part. If you think of a good football team, every player takes responsibility to play his or her part. Whether you're a forward, whether you're a winger, whether you're in goal, you take responsibility to play your part and to be the best team that you possibly can. And that's the thought when it comes to a biblical understanding of what true commitment is all about. And these early Christians were committed to playing their part to share the love and the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's just look at this verse for a few moments here in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. The first thing I want us to understand is that commitment is conceived in the heart. They were united in heart. This is about understanding. Unless we understand the benefit and the value of commitment, we will never act upon it. In Assemblies of God, we have a slogan that says we are stronger together. There's another phrase that's often spoken of, two are better than one. In the book of Proverbs in the Bible, it says a threefold cord is not easily broken. So we need to understand the essence and the power of true commitment. In becoming a Christian, we often use that term of giving your heart to Jesus. I remember as a young child going to Sunday school and very often we would have these kind of uh, expressions brought to us, you need to give your heart to Jesus. Well, of course, that's a metaphor for literally surrendering our lives totally to him. And the reason why we need to surrender our lives totally to Jesus is because the Bible says that the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Jesus also said about the heart, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, 
sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. The human heart is pretty rotten in terms of spirituality and morality. And so giving our hearts to Jesus is literally surrendering our whole lives to his lordship. Because the heart is naturally selfish and desires things that are often contrary to the word of God. Whereas when we surrender our lives to Jesus, he changes our hearts, he changes our attitudes, he gives us an understanding of the best way in which we can live. So true commitment involves a change of heart attitude. It's loving each other just as Jesus loves us. It's being willing to lay down your life for your brother or your sister, just as Jesus laid down his life for each and every one of us. John Austin said this, that you can be committed to church, but not committed to Christ. But you cannot be committed to Christ and not committed to his church. And there's a strong difference between there, because a lot of people say, well, I can be a Christian. I don't need to go to church. But actually, being a Christian is being part of a family. It's being part of a body. It's understanding that I am committed to my brother and sister, as it says way back in Genesis, when Cain said to God, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is yes. Commitment is about giving our lives together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these early Christians, they lived out that kind of love, that kind of commitment. They lived out their lives for the glory of Jesus' name. And Christian commitment is a spiritual act of living out what you believe. All of us make commitments in life. Most of you will be committed to getting up tomorrow morning, to going to your place of work, to doing seven or eight hours of work. Why? Well, probably the motivation is because you get paid for it. You might not necessarily do it for the love of it, I'm not sure, but we make commitments in life. If we didn't make commitments in life, we would go nowhere, we would do nothing, and we would lead totally unproductive lives. Rick Warren says this, your commitments can develop or destroy you, but either way, they will define you. And that's why Jesus said, so far as his kingdom is concerned, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. This commitment initially flows from the heart. It's about attitude. But then also in this verse here in Acts, they were committed not only in heart, but also in mind. United in heart, united in mind. The mind is where we make our choices. The Bible says in Proverbs, as a person thinks within himself, so he is. There's a story in the Old Testament of a couple who lived in Bethlehem. And during this time when they were living in Bethlehem, the crops began to fail and there was a serious famine. And so it was in the time when the judges ruled the nation of Israel. So this husband, whose name was Elimelech, said to his wife, 
let's move away where we can get food and we will survive. So they moved to the land of Moab and they lived there. They had food and it all seemed pretty good. And then their two sons fell in love with two Moabite girls and everything was wonderful. It was all going fine. Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, it all looked an idyllic situation. Then one day, Elimelech dies. Naomi is suddenly widowed. Not long after that, their two sons, Malhon and Kilion, they die. And Naomi is left with two widowed daughters-in-law. She then hears that there is food back in her homeland, back in Bethlehem, and she decides to return home. And she says to her daughters-in-law, look, I've got nothing to offer you. You stay here. But they say, no, we'll go with you. Partway along the journey, she says, look, go back home. I can't offer you anything. And one of the daughters-in-law, Orpha, she decides to go back to her home in Moab. But Ruth, the other daughter-in-law, she continues with Naomi. And again on the journey, Naomi says to her, look, go back home. I can't offer you anything. You've married into my family. You've ended up a widow. I've got nothing that I can give you. But this is what Ruth says to Naomi, these famous words. She says, don't ask me to leave you or turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Whenever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Here was a young woman who made the choice to be committed to Naomi. And if you know the story, she eventually becomes the great grandmother of King David, because David came through the line of Ruth, who then subsequently married Boaz. An incredible story of a young woman who commit, made the choice to commit herself to Naomi and the future with her. If we go on a little bit further in the Old Testament, we read of the time when the people of Israel had their first king, whose name was Saul. Saul started off fairly well, but very soon, Pride entered his heart and the whole kingship went badly wrong. He was rebellious. He was disobedient. He was abusive of the privilege and responsibility that God had given him to be the very first king of his people, Israel. So God then had David anointed to become the next king. However, Saul was determined to kill David. His jealousy took the better of him and he was eaten up with jealousy and did everything he possibly could to destroy David. But Saul had a son, Jonathan, who committed himself to protecting and looking out for David against his father's anger and jealousy. And on one occasion, Jonathan said this to David. He made a solemn pact with David saying, may the Lord destroy all your enemies. And David and Jonathan reaffirmed their vow of friendship again. And Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. That was a choice of commitment that Jonathan made to David. Just as Ruth made a choice to commit herself to Naomi, whatever it might cost. And these early Christians, they were totally committed. They chose to be committed one to another 
for the gospel of Jesus Christ, whatever the cost, they made that choice. And true commitment is worked out in the mind. It is a choice that we make on a daily basis. But just one last thing to point out here from this verse in Acts 4.32 is that commitment is not only conceived in the heart and outworked in the mind, but commitment is also seen in lifestyle. Because it says in this verse of scripture, they shared everything they had. That's a powerful way of sharing your lives. They shared everything that they had. This church shared and cared for one another in a way that they felt that whatever they owned was not their own. Now, we enter this world, the Bible says, with nothing. And we leave this world with nothing. But during our lifetime here on this earth, we accumulate many, many things and we say, well, well, that's mine. I've got this and I've got that and this belongs to me. In actual fact, nothing belongs to us at all. Everything is on loan to us. It is entrusted to us because we cannot take it with us when we die. So we accumulate in life all this stuff that we say is ours, but actually it's not. These early Christians had an attitude where everything that they possessed, they held lightly and they said, well, this is not mine. I don't own anything. We share everything. How do you get to that kind of relationship? Jesus often challenged people's individual commitment and the crunch point came when it called for a change in lifestyle. There was a young man who came to Jesus at one time. He was what was called a ruler, and the synagogues had rulers. And these rulers were quite influential people. They were pretty wealthy, and they were revered by everybody within Jewish culture. And this young ruler came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, uh, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, keep the commandments. He said, well, I've done all that. And so then Jesus said, well, there's one other thing you need to do. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And the Bible says the man went away sad because he was very rich. It called for a change in his lifestyle that he was not prepared to make. You see, commitment is about lifestyle. It's about how we live our lives. And these early Christians were so committed to Jesus and the gospel that their lifestyle radically changed so that they could share everything and welcome everybody into the love of God through the way they live their lives. On another occasion, Jesus spoke of what it meant to follow him. He said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot have eternal life. And the people were very confused. They said, well, how can we eat your flesh and drink your blood? You know, that is a strange thing to suggest. But Jesus was explaining that if you're going to follow me, it will cost you your life. It is about a total commitment. And later on, it says in that same passage in John chapter 6, that at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Why? Because they did not want to change their lifestyle. 
Chuck Swindle said this, he said, more than once Jesus deliberately addressed certain issues that quickly diminished the number of onlookers. It was commitment that thinned the ranks. If we just go into Acts chapter 2, there is a similar two or three verses to what was read to us by Nanny in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 2 and verses 42 to 46, it says this, that all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple and shared their meals with great joy and generosity and in the Lord's Supper. And all the while they were praising and enjoy, praising God, enjoying goodwill with all people. And each day the Lord added to their number. There's a few things that you notice in those verses that was distinctive about their commitment. It tells us the kind of lifestyle that they lived. They lived in a fellowship together. In other words, they were being there for one another. They showed up every day they met together. I love it when people show up on Zoom. I love it when people don't come to Zoom, but they send a message and say, look, I'm really sorry, I can't meet with you. When people don't show up on Zoom, I haven't a clue where they are, what they're doing, or why they can't be with us as a family. This church in the Acts, they showed up on a daily basis. They met together. There was a generosity. They shared their money. There was a hospitality. They shared meals with each other and ate together. There was prayer. They were meeting each other's needs. They loved one another unconditionally because they sold property and brought the money to the apostles so that the needs of others could be met. Judith read to us this morning out of 1 Peter chapter 1, and the last verse she read was this. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply from the heart. We don't write many letters nowadays, do we? But do you remember learning at school to write letters? And if you wrote, dear Mr. So-and-so, or if it was personal, you would always sign it yours sincerely. It says in this verse of scripture, love must be sincere or show sincere love. That word sincere comes from two Latin words, sine, which means without, and sir, which means wax. Sincere means without wax, and it has a very interesting origin, because back in the Roman times, marble was very, very popular. It's come back a bit. People have marble worktops nowadays, a bit heavy to put into place, but marble was very popular in Roman times and in the Roman Empire. And these people who used to work marble would polish it up and make it look absolutely fabulous, but occasionally there would be flaws. Occasionally it would crack. And so some dubious craftsman found a way where you could fill the crack with wax, 
polish it and polish it so it blended in beautifully and it looked just like marble. People would pay a lot of money. But then after a time, they became wise to the fact that they had been cheated because when the warm weather came, the wax would start to melt and they would realize that they had been sold inferior marble that was then absolutely worthless. And so everybody became wise to this fraud. And so a way was developed to make sure that the marble that someone was buying was sincere. It was without wax. And the craftsman would have to give a guarantee that the marble that he produced had no flaws in it. It was not filled with wax. It was sincere. You see, commitment to one another is living our lives sincerely, without wax, without flaws, without trying to cover up the cracks and the blemishes. It's about being genuine, honest in sharing our lives for the glory of Jesus' name.